Welcome to I'm a Writer But. My guest today is Jane Wong, the author most recently of the memoir Meet Me Tonight in Atlantic City and the poetry collections How to Not Be Afraid of Everything and Overpour. Jane Wong is a Kundiman Fellow and the recipient of fellowships and residencies from the U.S. Fulbright, Fulbright Program, the Fine Arts Work Center, Breadloaf, and others. Her writing can be found in places such as the Best American Non-Required Reading 2019, the Best American Poetry 2015, Poetry, McSweeney's, Echo Tone, The Common, and more. An associate professor of creative writing at Western Washington University, she grew up on the New Jersey shore and currently lives in Seattle, Washington. Welcome, Jane. Thanks so much for having me, Lindsay. It's such an honor to be here. Oh, it's an honor to have you. I I was just gushing over your book to you before we um, officially started recording. And um, like I said, I my one of my favorite things, I know I've said this often on the podcast, but one of my favorite things is when a poet writes prose, it is it is just a gift to be able to read it. Um and and to be able to, you know, to read a memoir written by a poet. And I know that you write other things as well, but um the abundance and the beauty and the bounty that is this book just completely blew me away. And I was sad when it ended. And I'm so happy I get to talk to you about it. I'm so excited to talk with you too. And thank you for your kind words. I keep thinking to myself that um, I wish it was more poetic, actually. Oh, are you serious? <laughs> yes, because I feel like the sentence was hard for me. Like I wanted to have meter every single sentence. Oh, wow. And I couldn't sustain it for whatever, almost 300 pages. And so it's so funny that um, in my mind as a poet, I was like, oh, there should be more poetry. <laughs> <laughs> But also I had to, you you know, let go of maybe uh, my obsession over every single word. So yeah. um, I'm grateful to kind of hear that from you because I was a bit nervous about making that shift. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, it feels like you obsessed over every word because it's so crisp and clear and evocative um, and, you know, just a joy to read, um, even as it was quite devastating in parts. And, um, but I, you know. I'm, I'm, I loved it. Um, and people are going to love it. And um, to give people a little taste, I'd love for you to read a little bit from it. Yeah, I would love to. Um, I think I'm going to read from the very beginning of the book, um, just two uh, sections. Um, and the first section is called Dragon Fruit. And it begins uh, the book, uh, let's say with uh, clearing, uh, clearing the guts. <laughs> so mm -hmm. Dragon fruit. In the murky broth of yet another heartache, my mother cuts me slices of dragon fruit. I'm home in Jersey and slumped at the kitchen table. My hair is dip dyed in snot, tears, and hot mascara. She hands me a slice, the white interior flecked with black seeds like suspended ants. The slice dangles on her knife, the glinting steel close to my mouth. I eat it off the knife. I've always eaten fruit this way, right off the sparks of my mother's blade. I take it into my throat, still heaving from too much survival mode. The taste is mild despite the fluorescent hot pink flame. The seeds punctuate something I know must come. It slides down my throat like a sweet summer slug. Jane, you have to be strong. I need you to eat more, she tells me, cutting another slice. 
but I tell her I'm so tired of being strong. Fuck strength. Fuck resilience. Fuck lessons to learn. Fuck trying and trying and trying. I tell her I don't want to be strong, that I can't be strong anymore, even if I wanted to be. I want to be weak. I want to fall completely apart. I want all the atoms in my body to crumble, scree of the self. I want to lie down on this cold kitchen table forever. I want to be a sloth who hasn't shit in a week, week. Crashed, cracked ice, dish soap bubbles, mild hot sauce, rabbit paralyzed by fear, my breath leaking from me like an ellipses, weak. I expect her to disagree, to demand strength, to tell me I have no choice. Did she have a choice staring at the gaping pits my father left behind? This time, though, she doesn't fight me. So be weak, she says, almost like a threat. Sticky fruit juice encircles her jade bracelet. Fruit flies rouse around us, dizzy stars. But you have to eat more dragon fruit and clear your system. She wants me to shit it out. This time, she hands me the knife. And I'm just going to read the very beginning of the title chapter, which is called Meet Me Tonight in Atlantic City. Let's begin here, on the ground, or rather on the slabs of wood above the ground. In July 1854, a New Jersey tourist train from Camden made its inaugural voyage to Atlantic City. Tourists came to stick their toes in the Atlantic Ocean, steel blue, the color of whales they'll never see. They came to lean against each other in the high dunes and make promises they couldn't keep. They let the wind lift those promises up, caught in the chandeliers of expensive hotels or the beaks of passing seagulls. The women who came held frilled umbrellas, jellyfish along the shore. And when they returned to their jobs and errands and thumb-sucking babies, they carried sand with them, making the train car a beach in and of itself. Glitter of the sea, this is how the boardwalk came to be, a frustrated railroad conductor and simply too much sand for his own sweeping sanity. On June 16, 1870, boards were erected 10 feet wide and 12 feet long. Just to be clear, this is not our story, not yet. Our story moves across that steel blue fantasy onto another continent toward a place where there is no such thing as vacation. My ancestors will stare at that word as if it were a cloud that could disappear at any point. On this continent, there are herds of oxen and lily pads the size of promises that can't be made. As a small child, I dreamt of this story, of an ox and my mother riding its back, the hair on its hide so coarse it makes your throat hurt. Our story, our history, is a different Atlantic City. It is 1988 and my mother is still dreaming in Toysanese. Not a single word of English worms its way through her open mouth sleep world. My little brother Stephen had just been born howling like a wolf who knew he was a boy. Four years earlier, when the nurses placed me in my mother's arms, I stared at her silently. She held me up to the fluorescent hospital light and declared, I'm afraid she knows too much. By 1988, my father had been holding illegal mahjong gambling circles for five years, often in the basement. Cigarette smoke escaped like doves from underneath the floorboards. And the shuffling, the shuffling sound of mahjong tiles, a porcelain earthquake. I learned later that some of those tiles used to be made out of bone or bamboo, now bakelite, plastic. 
My father always invited the same people to play with him, the chicken bone man, city uncle, and balding uncle. His friends always played with toothpicks dangling out of their mouths, moving the sticks from side to side in concentration. My brother and I named the crew the Toothpick Gang. Just to be clear again, our story is not about small enterprises. Our story goes beyond the small batons of $20 bills passed around the mahjong table, beyond the table's green felt stained with cheap singtel and sky-high piles of gnawed bones from the chicken bone man's self-evident pastime. Our story is Atlantic City. We are talking about the Taj Mahal, Caesars, Bali's. Casinos depicting worlds my father simply couldn't fathom. At Caesars, there were towering white columns so extravagant they held up nothing at all. There were white statues of horses braying, a ceiling painted like the sky with white clouds, the busts of white people we assumed were famous but were really just white. My parents didn't even know where Rome was on a map or that Rome existed. But Caesars was gleaming in its whiteness. Who could say no to the patina of wealth? This is how we arrived on that Chinese tourist bus where you have to fan yourself with your $10 gambling voucher and put your cigarette out in a Dixie cup. Or if you hit it big like we once did, you can arrive in the dolphin colored leather of your BMW before you inevitably crash it into the Garden State Parkway median. No air conditioning and the windows down to save on gas mileage, of course. We arrived over a century later on a boardwalk full of non-white faces, shoulder pads, pinstripe suits, an amalgamation of languages punctuating the salty air, the poor, the working class, the hopeful in red tag sequin dresses from Marshalls. Here we are, yes, here, with self-serve wine and crab legs at the Palace Court Buffet, all of which we marveled at but never touched. Thank you so much. I'm so glad that you were able to read um, a little bit from each kind of section in the book, because I wanted to start by talking about the structure. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at the book, it's quite striking. It's, um, you know, the 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 sides of the pages are black and white and you can see, okay, there's these, you know, these marked sections. Um, and sometimes there's photographs. Um, the The sections outlined in black are more sort of you now, um, you know, or your mother, um, and then the, the sections that are not outlined in black are, are more about your past and, and kind of thinking about how your past has informed your present. Um, I just wanted to, to ask you how that structure came about, um, you know, and, and how you came to it. That's such a great question. And, uh, you know, it didn't come to me until kind of like, a, like a little late, almost kind of, um, like I was getting worried in terms of what this was going to look like, um, wow of uh you know the deadline <laughs> that was approaching in, oh my gosh the memoir um so a lot of the chapters in the memoir were standalone essays before um and so I remember when I sent along uh I think about 75 pages or so to Tin House um it was just really a, a collection of essays and so um, my wonderful editor, Elizabeth DeMio, really pushed me to kind of think through what this book would look like as a memoir. And I was quite intimidated by this idea of a memoir. It just felt daunting to me. And so um, I really knew that I needed something that was going to act as a kind of through line throughout the the book. And I 
I was really obsessed with this idea of nonlinearity, especially um, as someone who teaches Asian American literature. Literature, um, I really think that nonlinearity replicates or kind of mirrors that experience of migration and tumult and wow. um, what it means to to kind of move across the country after so much trauma and thinking about the Great Leap Forward and thinking about the Cultural Revolution, but I knew I couldn't write a memoir that was going to be linear. Um, and so and, and so many wonderful memoirs that I've taught in my Asian American literature courses aren't linear, such as um, The Best We Could Do, um, such a, a brilliant book. Um, and even thinking about Good Talk or um, I'm going down my list of all the, the books that I've been teaching recently, Crying in H Mart. Um, and so I was really compelled by this idea of like, what could it be that, you know, braids the the collection? And one of my friends and I were walking uh, in a park in Bellingham where I teach. And um, he was telling me how my mom told him advice on a bus many, many years ago in Seattle. And it kind of changed the direction of his life. Oh my gosh. And, I uh, yeah. And he was saying how he wishes there was a website called wallmom.com <laughs> where he could just type what, you know, he was worried about, what he wanted to know about. And my mom would just reply and I laughed it off, but um, he was like, no, seriously, it's, it, it was really necessary to to hear what she said. And so in many ways, these little, little pieces that are braided throughout the collection um, these little uh, portals, I guess, into some kind of present future world uh, are those kind of wongmom.com sections as well. And I really think of those particular sections with the kind of border around them visually as um, a present me, but also kind of a future. There's like a future element to them too, because mm -hmm. obviously uh, my mom in the internet or this wongmom.com isn't necessarily um, real uh, when I was writing this book, but I'm making her real. So mm -hmm. I feel like that's kind of fun. And I always knew I was going to make her real. I think I bought the domain right when I came up with the idea um, to to write this um, as part of the memoir. And uh, I was so thrilled that no one had bought it yet. So I was like, great, I'm going to I'm going to make her real. So it's fate. It's total fate. Exactly. Yes. I love um, throughout in those sections. Sometimes you're literally typing into wongmom.com your questions. Yeah. Um, and, and I think I, you're also having these conversations with your actual mom. Um, yes. And, and so it really is like a marriage of, you know, all the work that your mom, your actual mom has done in raising you and preparing you for the world and that she's still doing um, that has created the groundwork for you to be wongmom.com in a way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's just I love that you said that. Yes, absolutely. I feel like I, I almost kind of like, um, I'm sort of her. I've been making this kind of terrible joke where I'm like the knockoff, like grand cereal <laughs> of her. Like I'm just not really Cheerios, you know, like, <laughs> like honey, honey circles or something. <laughs> Is she aware of wongmom.com? I know she's been, um, you know, she started reading the book, but is she, is she aware of this Oracle that we're all going to start using? You know, she, she isn't, I think she's starting to learn about 
this other version of her, which is kind of funny as she kind of starts to read the book or experience the book, but I didn't tell her or anything, which is kind of funny. I should have maybe told her. She probably just thinks it's really funny and like almost, I bet she's going to be like, you know, who wore it better? Like the real <laughs> mom or was it, or is it wongmom.com? She's probably going to be battling like um, for Wong mom status. <laughs> I just for some reason imagine her just being kind of like, well, I'm the real one. <laughs> yeah. Never forget who the actual wongmom.com is. Exactly. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about your vision for the for the website? Will it be articles? Will it be what do you what do you envision? I'm kind of uh collaborating with my dear friend who is an artist and uh, a designer. <laughs> and um his name is Eric Olson and we've been kind of dreaming it up. It's kind of still in the works, but we're really imagining it, it being a kind of throwback to um, or the early internet and like kind of like angel fire sites and um, AOL instant messenger pop-ups and a lot of just like, uh, I don't know if you remember just kind of the moving images of like all these like GIFs just kind of like, um, like dancing, dancing fruits and stuff like that. Yes. It's just going to be a little <laughs> funny. Um, and uh, there's going to be maybe places where you can hover over images and click on it and and little passages maybe from the book will appear. Or um, I know that he was planning on making um, a kind of like mailbox that you can click on because my mom is a USPS uh, worker oh, yes. and of course it's kind of like you got mail but like you really like the usps like you know that's um, incredible you got mail actually um so there'll be a play off of that and yes uh you know you'll you'll be able to kind of type in um, a question and um she will respond with some of the things she says in the book and so it kind of depends on what you type in i suppose that you'll kind of get a sense of what you need to do depending on her answer, but I'm not sure yet, but it's going to be a journey. I think like making this website because I, I, I just hope it's going to be um, pretty fun and kind of almost like very nostalgic too, to those Absolutely. early in the nine, very nineties. I think people are rife for nostalgia for angel fire websites, you know? <laughs> yes. Yes. And like, I was, the thing is sometimes I was like trying to decide like whether or not to have some of the you know, the cheesy sounds that there's, there's the, there are the sounds of the internet, you know, like, um, the sound of sending email or, um, or even the, you got mail kind of sound, or, <laughs> yes. um, the sound of dial up internet. If I can incorporate oh, that somehow. Yes. As soon as you get to the site, you're like, no, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's like loading. Like, uh, so for so long, you really need to make a sandwich. Like, wow. Yeah. And then you eat the sandwich and then it's ready. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about how this book started? You know, mm -hmm. why you started writing it and then and then what it was like to keep it going and bring it all the way to fruition? Yeah. So I I think I started writing this, um, I want to say around 2017-ish. Uh, and so it's been actually a while in my mind and it didn't come out as a memoir until very, very recently. And so I started again, um, writing much of the book as kind of singular essays. Um, the chapter 
that's the oldest, I suppose, in the book is a cheat sheet for restaurant babies. Mm. Um, and I, you know, it was so funny. I started when I was starting to write that particular chapter or a standalone essay, I really imagined it almost kind of like a prose poem or it felt very much, I mean, some of the the chapters do feel more poetry based mm-hmm. than others to some degree. And so it was like the first moment I think where I was like oh I'm going to make this kind of transition I think um to kind of mix the poetry and prose here and so for me it's obvious that that's the first one because it's just so um lyrical Mm -hmm. um maybe compared to some of the other uh chapters in the book and so uh yeah I started this this book in 2017 and as I was writing more and more of these these essays um I tried to kind of really think about it in terms of a larger scale book and I was writing poems the whole time I was working on these essays of course like um, I think my second collection of poetry how to not be afraid of everything uh, was written pretty much at the same time as working through a lot of these essays and um, you know I think it was around I want to say December 2021 where uh, I really started to to work on the book as like a book book um Mm -hmm and as a memoir and so I wrote in my mind I wrote this memoir pretty quickly I mean even though I didn't because so much of it was drafted before the moment where I actually thought of it as a memoir Mm -hmm. Um, but I'll be honest I feel like I certainly uh, you know wrote a huge chunk of this book I want to say just you know this past summer, I feel kind of wow. like, oh, oh my gosh. Yes. Yes. I, I stayed at my dear friend, Dan Lau's place in San Francisco. I was uh, kind of house sitting for him for a chunk of time. And I, I just busted out pages. Like I realized that prose to a certain degree, you just have to put words down. And mm-hmm. then I really went back and, and revised it for a lot of clarity, but also some of the, you know, poetry I wanted in there more so than just the kind of um, getting some word count down. But, um, but it was such a joy, I think, to kind of write this book in both a very slow and very fast way, because I think what ended up happening was that the book feels very, very, um, to me, at least as a writer, um, writing it feels really like vibrational, or it feels still like, like it's like a wound that you can touch and it's still mm-hmm. um it still has some of that goopiness to it mm-hmm. and i feel pretty proud of that because it it goes right up to the present and that was a challenge slash risk that i took um in writing it because it wasn't finished you know when i sold the book and so there's something about writing up to the present that felt like a total vulnerable risk and i i took it mostly because I don't know if I have another memoir in me. Like I was like, <laughs> that was it. It's so hard. This is so hard. And so I just went, I went all out, I suppose. Um, and so that's kind of the journey of the the process of writing it. And again, I was writing poems all throughout um, my time since 2017, all the way up to, you know, the last, um, you know, copy edits for the book. Um, so it's so funny that, you know, I never stopped writing poetry the whole time. And so I, I hope that maybe that's going to be kind of like a shadow 
element of this book too is that you know in many ways I needed to write poems in order to write the prose and so Mm -hmm. so it's um as as you kindly said in the beginning that feel like poetry to me so Mm -hmm. uh yeah that was the journey and it was um again so hard I have to really emphasize that like poetry for me is um, a kind of cozy space of bewilderment where I don't need to reflect on anything. I just kind of, you know, can play with sounds and uh, metaphor and um, I don't ever need to pause um, if I don't want to. And in the memoir, I really did need to reflect and stay there for a while to sit in it. And that was so hard, but I also learned so much, I think, in doing so both mm-hmm. as a like a human, um, but also uh, as a writer too. Mm-hmm. When it got hard, what were you doing to make sure that you kept going with the work? That's a beautiful question. Um, the times in which it got hard, especially with chapters such as um, The Object of Love, which I mm-hmm. think is one of the hardest chapters, um, but also I think the one that I'm the most proud like the proudest of that particular chapter um I think what kept me going was um really kind of like writing into my fear of writing Mm. about it there's a lot of I guess moments where in the book I talk about writing and you know what it is about writing that gives me some sense of agency and power uh truly and so when I would be afraid to write a scene, I would have to kind of like write about why I was afraid of writing it or try to get a little closer to kind of, um, I don't know, like what was stopping me from writing that scene. And so I guess I was very honest and blunt about, you know, what writing does in terms of opening up those doors just a little bit. And so Um, So that I think I reflected a lot on writing and that helped Mm -hmm. me write the hard moments. Um, But I also took breaks like I took like a long break from a lot of those hard moments. The object of love like I that's probably the the essay or chapter that really took multiple years. I like I think I started that the seed of that maybe in also 2017 ish and I didn't finish it until I turned in my memoir like it you know that one was the one that actually took multiple multiple years and it came in fragments and pieces and um and so you know I think it's important to actually take an actual like break from writing because I I think I never want the page to do me harm um and the page will never hurt you (laughs) you know I always think about that um and so uh in many ways I feel really grateful for the materials of language to to try to work through some difficult parts. But I also know that sometimes language can't do it. And so I remember that for a lot of the difficult parts of the book, I would step away and just like go do ceramics or mm-hmm. like, you know, eat us eat soup, you know, like mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's important too. Mm-hmm. And yeah. You're feeding yourself in all these other ways, writing poetry, you know, yeah. um, giving yourself rest um, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, um, that's, that's a, a delicate thing for, for lots of people writing memoirs, um, is, you know, how do I write this thing? That's going to be really hard to write. 
Um, and it sounds mm -hmm. like you had a really healthy way of going about it, um, of just sort of interrogating it when you felt like you could, and then feeding yourself in ways when you needed to be fed. Yeah. And I think in addition to that feeding or that nourishment is that I really wanted the tone of this memoir to be, or rather tones, I'll say that plural, mm -hmm. to kind of be kind of a shock uh, to the system and in a good way. Like I, I, I hope it's a funny book. And I think that especially when there are really difficult moments, especially for instance, in the object of love, like it was important for me to end that particular chapter kind of with some like moment of laughter mm -hmm. slash tears. And it ends that particular chapter ends with, you know, a joke that my mom tells me about, you know, her wanting to be my boyfriend, and, <laughs> which is so ridiculous. But, you know, that chapter talks a lot about, you know, um, toxicity and um, just a lot of, you know, abuse um, in, in my kind of like romantic life, a lot of domestic violence. And in that chapter at the end, she just says, you know, I will be your boyfriend mm -hmm. um, and I will love you and care for you and tell you how special you are every day, but no sexy stuff. <laughs> and I'm just like, what? And I knew that was the perfect way to end that really hard chapter because it just, it just was like, I needed to end it so that I felt like everything was going to be all right. Mm -hmm. And my mom making me laugh like that, like, that's just, that's so soothing to me. So yeah, a lot I, of that. I love that you acknowledged the various tones of the book, because that to me was one of the, um, one of the most meaningful parts of reading this book was how I could go from like, hell yeah. Like, oh my God, this is so empowering to, oh my God, I'm going to start weeping to I'm laughing, you know, and there's so many, I've dog-eared this book more than I've ever dog-eared any other book. And I oh, have to apologize because I don't usually dog-ear, but I had to mark so many moments in the book. Um, and, you know, I feel like allowing for a variety of tone variety of tones it feels so weird to say tones plural even though that's what yeah. we mean <laughs> yeah. um you know did you get did you get any pushback from yourself when it came to that did you get any pushback in editing when it came to that or was it just you know was it just the way that the book was unfolding thank you so much for those kind words you know my editor Elizabeth was so into it and you know if anything I am so grateful for her like letting me just do it and just do what I kind of wanted to do because um, I will say that I personally um, couldn't write just a, a book that just felt like um, just, I mean, I guess I'll just say it bluntly, like trauma porn. Mm -hmm. Like I couldn't, I couldn't mm -hmm. give that to readers and I couldn't give it to myself. Mm -hmm. um, it was just too psychically painful like I just couldn't do it yeah. um, and so it was really important for me to kind of intermingle all these different tonal shifts um, little tonal voltas and thinking about poetry like like you said like one minute I'm like laughing really hard and the next minute I'm just like heartbroken mm -hmm. and everything feels like it's gushing out like I really wanted to kind of um, be honest and true to my like life experience, which is exactly that. Like, I feel like 
<laughs> um, so much of my personality is in this particular book, this memoir, because I think in my poetry, I have like a different voice. Like I have a kind of like my my poetic voice or my poetry voice is almost like Jane to the like 500th degree. Like there's <laughs> something that my poet self knows that I don't as a regular person or like, wow. a, like it's hard to explain, but it's almost like she's, um, she has an authority. Yeah. She has an authority and she has like, uh, even if she's uncertain in a poem that there's something that the poem knows that, you know, I don't. And so in a way, like I've never been able to be truly like funny or goofy in my poems, even though I I'm learning how to be inspired by, you know, wonderful friends like Chen Chen, who um, Mm -hmm. has so many kind of dips in tone in terms of, again, that laughter and that heartache. Um, So I I really learned a lot from from Chen and kind of like um, writing my memoir too, and and thinking about letting all the parts of myself kind of um, show up to this memoir and I'm a total for anyone who knows me I'm a total weirdo and total goofball and (laughs) I'm just especially as a teacher as a professor like my students are always just kind of like wait wait what did she just do like (laughs) and so but I'm also really rigorous and and quite serious too when I teach and so they're confused I think by the amount of play in my classroom but also the amount of um you know, rigor. And so mm-hmm. I really wanted in my memoir to re- kind of like mirror just who I am as, as close to the bone as I could. And, and that includes my absolute like goofball self where I can, you know, basically start off the book with like poop, um, <laughs> you know, but yep. also a heartbreaking moment of poop because yep. you know, you're like, devastated and you're I'm devastated. Exactly. Yeah. And so it was really, trying to find um I think like the the right balance I think throughout the book and I'm so glad that you said that because my biggest worry was that people were going to come to this book and think oh like I'm going to read a book about like um a Chinese American woman like growing up poor you know in a strip mall um and and I was just like yeah, kind of my story, sort of, dot, 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 but also <laughs> how, so ridiculous, <laughs> yes, how ridiculous is her story. And it's, you know, to write a, a kind of heartbreaking but funny chapter on going to unlicensed dentists in Chinatown, oh, yes. mm-hmm. you know, was it's called Root Canal Street. I mean, I, I hope oh, that's gosh. funny to some people yep. that, you know, trying to find like the grandma who takes you to the dentist is funny, but also it's incredibly painful in thinking about, you know, um, the hit, the, the kind of history behind it all and what it means to, for my mom to come out of, you know, um, Maoist China and growing up in the countryside where, she, you know, she was growing up in such poverty that she couldn't, she doesn't have any real teeth, you know, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. And so, and what it means to be such a beautiful woman that she, you know, obviously wants to to kind of have, you know, beautiful fake teeth. And again, we grew up um, um, quite low income. And so not having health insurance growing up, like we had to make do, like the book is also really at its fundamental core about how to make do, like how to make do with what you have and, and don't have and, um, and to be proud of that and it 
it takes like these little avenues of kind of like, you know, you know, you, you have to laugh um, as you cry in those moments mm -hmm. of living paycheck to paycheck. Mm -hmm. I suppose. I mean, it is, I think for anyone who kind of grew up maybe in a similar way, um, they'll, they'll kind of nod, they'll get it. They'll get that kind of like, oh yeah, that, <laughs> you know, the, the plastic bags within the plastic bags within the oh, plastic absolutely. bags yes. yes. Reusing everything. Everything. Yes. everything. Yes. And that brings me to, um, one of my favorite aspects of the novel of, of the memoir is how much food is in the novel is I keep saying novel is in the memoir. <laughs> and, um, I mean, I was starving as I read it because it, the way that you that you work with food in this book is um so evocative and and really you know like brings you know what you're trying to say home in a completely new way um especially when you were talking about using all of something yeah. um and not throwing out not throwing out anything if it's rotten sort of trimming it away and using what's what's left um it really felt uh, like a mirror to the abundance in your prose and your poetry mm. and how you're pulling beauty and sustenance um, you know, and, and bringing it to light in a, in a way that like, you know, is new. And, um, it just felt like when you were talking about the way that you use rotting cilantro, <laughs> you know, and how you'll, and, and I grew up the same way you cut off the moldy part of the cheese and it's fine. You know, yeah. you use the spoiled milk to bake pancakes or whatever, you know, like that, that to me felt like it was really another way of you talking about your writing. Mm. I love that you said that and I'm just really um, honored that you kind of, you know, feel that way because I, I, I didn't, I don't know. It's so funny that you said that. Cause I was like, did, Oh, I didn't make that connection or that's just so funny. That <laughs> was like, Oh, writing and nourishment obviously go hand in hand. Um, and, you know, I think especially with this idea of kind of like abundance, like I, I feel like, words the fact that you know there's so many ways to to try to describe something like there's this other scene where I'm trying to like like I don't know like be the person who makes up the kind of uh names for nail polish like yes. you know, yeah kind of like chocolate slime like oh yes. that's a great color I forgot um, about that line it's so good <laughs> um and I I think that there's so much abundance in in poetry and, and metaphor and language and imagery so that it does feel kind of like overflowing with like imagination and possibility um, in terms of how to, how to describe something um, such as nail polish. And I, I think that I feel the same way when I look inside of a, yeah, like a compost bin or just like mm -hmm. um, all the colors and swirling, you know, smells and the texture of it too. I always want to get as close as I can you know, like nose close to an image. Like I just love imagery and synesthesia in writing so much. And I think that has to come from me growing up in a restaurant. Like there's mm -hmm. no way I keep thinking about this. Like, you know, I didn't learn poetry in school. Like I didn't, you know, become a writer because of school. Like I, I, I know it came from growing up in a restaurant and being with my family and my ancestors like truly because like if you grow up in a restaurant it's like everything around you is symphonic like you hear the sounds of the walk you smell like the the shrimp you know mm -hmm. goop that you're kind of 
taking out mm -hmm. like this stain, so to speak. Um, and you feel the cold of the, you know, the, the meat freezer and you hear little blips of conversation from customers that you're kind of like, you know, listening in on. And there's just so much happening at the restaurant at once that I feel like I was like bathing in like sensory detail. And I think that that was so tied to me being a writer. Like, I can't help but think about that. Like, <clears throat> like so much of my experience, I think writing is tied to eating, <laughs> uh, you know, and I, amazing. It's, but it's so funny because I was just, uh, I just got the final copies of my book and I was like, oh, I don't want to do an unboxing video. That's uh, it just is not my thing. And I was like, I'm going to do a souping video. Like I'm just <gasps> going to go and take it to a restaurant and like my favorite, one of my favorite restaurants in Seattle and, and just kind of like eat it with some soup, like kind of like be there with some soup. And uh, it was so fun to do. It felt like the right way to usher like the final copies into the world, at least for, for me holding mm -hmm. them. And um, it was so funny. I went to Mike's, uh, noodle house in the ID in Seattle. And I was asking one of the, uh, you know, waitresses if she would be willing to like bring out my book with some soup. And she's such an auntie. She was just like, no, we cannot. <laughs> no. She's like, Hell no. And I was like, okay. And so I was like, fine, I'll just like, you know, I'll figure out something else. And so uh, as, as I was like, dunk, I think I dunked a, a postcard out of the book into some soup and like ladled that into my mouth or something. And she was just staring at me from across the room, <laughs> shaking her head. And I was like, this is the right way. Like this is super Chinese. Um, you were like, you don't know. worry. I grew up in a restaurant. It's okay. I, tried to say, I know. I tried to tell her that. And she was just like, I don't care. <laughs> You're just like it's a busy Sunday lunchtime. Like we're just oh my like, getting like bowl of joke after bowl of joke out. So <laughs> what are you saying to me about your book? And oh. she didn't even say congrats. She was just like looking at me like, what do you? <laughs> which is again the most Chinese way to like go about it, which I felt like was right. So uh, so yes, thanks for those those like kind words because I really do think that you know so much of my book is so tied to everything in my life in terms of like food like I, I have to uh really think about you know even the book tour or just even how busy my life is teaching while this book is coming out like I haven't been able to nourish myself like feed myself very well but oh my gosh I'm so lucky so many of my colleagues and friends are just like giving me soups and stuff like they're just oh, like wow you know they're just like I know you're busy Jane I know things have been so uh difficult also in your personal life right now so you know, I would just find like Luna bar, like just like bars of like bars and snacks, like in my, my tote bag, like they just slip it in when I thought, oh so, wow. you know, and there's a part of the memoir where I talk a lot about this idea of fertilizer. Um, and it's I just love feels, that. And your mom's yeah. compost. Yes. My mom's compost, like mm -hmm. everything goes back into the garden, like all the food, you know, everything goes back into the system of like, what are we going to grow to eat? Um, and what it means to fertilize community and uh, networks of care um, and mutual aid. Like, I feel like I'm so grateful for that, but also like, you know, I must fertilize too. Like it's an ecosystem in which I must do that for dear ones as much as they do that for me. So I'm just really grateful for that type of love in my life. And 
um, I hope that really comes out in the book because as much as there is a lot of rage and anger in this memoir, there's so much love, like mm-hmm. so much love. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's almost like a manual of how to love well. Um, yeah, it, it feels like a book that um, that knows you the way your family knows you. Mm-hmm. I think it goes back to what we were talking about with the variety of tone tones um, where, you know, it's all there and it's the way that your family, your chosen family knows you and loves you. It's, it's all right there. Um, and it's reciprocal, exactly like you're saying, you know, they're showing you how to love them and you're showing them how to love you. Um, and it's here, it's in this beautiful, beautiful book. Thank you. I'm still learning how to love. I think that it's a continual process. And I think, you know, especially the title of my second book, how to not be afraid of everything. I don't, I don't obviously give any advice in that book. Um, it's not a, unfortunately a manual I'm still afraid and I'm still Mm -hmm. fearful about so much that's happening in our world on a daily on an hourly basis Mm -hmm. and so rageful and you know I think that's the other thing too is like you know people don't necessarily expect me to be so angry I think that and that makes me even angrier somehow Mm -hmm. uh you know in the job in my like love life any of that and I will say that, you know, rage felt in communities is so different from rage felt alone. And mm-hmm. so it does really fertilize back into, into love. And, um, you know, I think we're all, you know, learning, learning over and over again, how to love and mm-hmm. it's going to be a continual process, but I really learned that from, again, my, my community, but also my mom. I mean, she's the ultimate, you know, dreamer in terms of what love and possibility can look like she always reminds me all the time like you know there are beautiful things out there Mm -hmm. you know like there are as much Mm -hmm. as there are like really you know terrifying like cruel things out there but Mm -hmm. I've been always drawn towards the grotesque that kind of like space between um that which is beautiful and um quote-unquote ugly I'm I've always uh been drawn to I think grotesque language or or language that gets a little um visceral yeah, visceral and goopy organal mm-hmm. yes. oh god you're really speaking my language <laughs> yeah organal yeah I just really want to get there into the guts and I I I feel like that is you know I want to be in that ugly cry moment where the snot is like coming out of your nose so fast that yeah, I think I I can't remember. I'm my, my writing's starting to blur, so I'm just like, was this mm-hmm. in the or was mm-hmm. it in? Like, <laughs> I don't know. But this idea of the snot becoming a galaxy, like I just really want. I like, think that is in here. Okay, it is. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, and, and do you think yeah. that's because it's like closer to the truth, or as true as it can possibly be to what it felt like? Do you think that's why you and me <laughs> are attracted to the grotesque? I think so because. I think like so much of, uh, you know, life is generally constantly like an, this slippage between an ode and an elegy. Like there's so much beauty and delight, but also like grief and loss and mm-hmm. those aren't separate things. And so I, I think like the grotesque, um, at least in terms of language and imagery allows me to dwell in that liminal space mm-hmm. of, of that kind mm-hmm. of moving through our world in this kind of emotional state of rawness. I think, you know, a lot of the time we don't want to see the fact that, you know, our 
you know, garbage can is like overfilling. Cause like, we're too tired to take it out. Yeah. Um, or like, Oh, the dishes are piling in the sink and they're, you know, there's no time to wash them. And so they, they get all slimy and start to kind of like, um, yeah, kind of like a, a snail slime has like grown on them and, <laughs> you know, and it, and then your sink gets clogged from like trying to like wash it way too late. Um, and like you just shoving, like trying to like, like pour water down, hot water down there to try to like break up the pieces. Like yes. that, that is real life. That and like, is. why not get into that like chunky clogged drain? Like that is literally the imagery I'm drawn towards because that's just real. Like I have to, I have to look at, I have to deal with that. I have to like, you know, clean that out as best as I can. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. I would say if someone who worked the night shift at the post office in the middle of the pandemic can tell Mm -hmm. us that there is beauty in this world, then we have to listen. (laughs) Yeah. You're so right. You're so right. And oh my gosh, like my mom, I think is someone who is so so aware of everything around her that's you know been so you know yeah difficult or painful or truly hauntingly tragic like but but she still believes that there are beautiful things out there and that there's something about her at the post office yeah kind of working you know during the pandemic still really uh and taking so much overtime as a result because the mail has been astronomical really um mm-hmm. since the beginning of the pandemic and you know her co-workers will stop by and like chat with her and about life and just ask her advice and she just that's like her favorite thing to do is like um give give life advice to herself to to her co-workers in those like you know 2 a.m moments and so there's something about that in particular that feels really powerful mm-hmm. um And, you know, she's always, she's always going to work. I mean, this is the thing too, is that I, I know that that's exhausting. I know that it's a job that's not easy. It's, it's a job that demands a lot of um, physical labor as much as it does, um, you know, again, those overtime shifts can be so long. I mean, and she, she never takes time off and it scares me a little bit because I keep telling her, it's just like, that's the one thing with upward mobility that. I thought that was the point. Like I thought I could like make her life easier and yet mm-hmm. it still keeps going, you know, so late at night to, to work. And I I have to respect that that's, you know, that's what she wants to do as well. Um, but at the same time, there is, I, I can tell that there's something that's drawing her there besides work. And it's clearly her postal worker family. Like she's, mm-hmm it's her community. It's her love language to talk to them. And so, uh, yeah, it's all entangled in that way, but yeah, shout out to the USPS. Oh my goodness. Um, truly, truly our essential workers, like just getting pure tip your mail carrier. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Please like, please say hi, greet them, be kind, be, be patient when you're in line at the post office, please just like have kindness at the post office, people can be so mean. <laughs> it's truly, uh, it's wild. It's such a cliche at this point, but, and you would think that it's become such a cliche that it's not going to be like that anymore. But every time I go, someone is rude. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, it's 
almost kind of like, I, I feel like I, I have to be, I tell every single time I'm at the post office, I tell the postal clerk that my mom's a, a you know, a postal clerk and uh, it kind of lightens the mood a little bit. Like it always, like, you know, and, and people always get mad at me for chit chatting always, no matter what, even if it's just like a, two sentences of chit chat, you know? And so, yeah. And, and a lot of people don't know that there are so many male, uh, you know, like uh, postal clerks who work, you know, sorting mail too. I feel like they don't know what goes into getting a piece of mail delivered mm -hmm. <laughs> across the world. And so it, it is, it is a lot. It is a lot. And again, you know, the amount of paper cut, like it's physically hard labor too, with, you know, my mom's hands. Like I think about that all the time, you know, her labor in her hands, like from the restaurant days, to obviously being a mother but also like you know being a postal clerk like mm -hmm. I I always look at my hands and my you know, like how the labor's in my hands too but it's like carpal tunnel from like typing <laughs> yeah laptop too much and like you know it's a different type of labor I think in terms of um, being a professor and you know I feel really uncomfortable with upward mobility like I I I'm still working through that um mm -hmm. in terms of what it means to to, to be in this position now. And I, I, I get so uncomfortable. I, I tell my students like, please just call me Jane. Like Dr. Wong really makes me uncomfortable as really? does. You know, wow. But I you did all the work. You did all I the work. Did. I did, but it just, I'm still just the restaurant baby. I tell my students, I'm like, I'm just Jane, the restaurant baby. Wow. And yeah, I wrote some poems <laughs> or like yeah. I wrote some poems, but at my central core, I'm just a curious, hungry restaurant baby. And I, I feel, I know I did the work, but I don't, I don't need or want the title of doctor. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. I just, it creates a hierarchy. I think in my classroom that I don't think is necessary. I, I'm just a practicing writer, just like they are. And so I write with them every prompt I give them. I write with them. I share with them. I sit at the table with them. Like I don't, I'm not a doctor in that way. I can't. I certainly can't do surgery on um, <laughs> on anything, but again, going back to the organal word, like I'm just like, <laughs> I may have some experience with organs, but um, but only only the metaphorical ones. <laughs> Can you recommend three books that you mm -hmm. feel like our our readers should or our listeners should be reading? Oh my gosh, that is always the hardest question. Because it, is. it sucks. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Oh, that's so hard. Mostly because like, I think it's because I'm a professor and I, I struggle with even like making a syllabus um, in terms of like, you know, I want to always put way too many books on there. Um, so that's, that's how that is. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, okay. I'm going to answer that question maybe by um, what I'm kind of currently reading or like teaching I yeah. suppose at this I think that's great very moment. Yeah. um so I'm teaching actually tomorrow Beholding by Ross Gay a very oh, yes. beautiful book long poem um and so I would recommend Beholding uh, by Ross Gay um let's see what else am I teaching um I'm also teaching uh also tomorrow <laughs> I feel like I'm just like going through the list of what I'm teaching. Just give us your syllabus. We all want it. Right. <laughs> Lately, long soldiers, whereas. Um, so I'm teaching that. We're talking a lot about form 
specifically to and um, space of the page and how that's so deeply tied to emotional weight. Um, so yeah, Lele Long Soldiers, whereas, um, and I think, um, you know, mem memoir wise, um, I really loved reading um, Cat Chow's Seeing Ghosts. Mm -hmm. um, I've been obsessed with ghosts for a long time, um, both um, kind of in the very real sense of that word. Like I do believe truly in, in ghosts and in many ways, ghosts being tender, tender beings who kind of like are always here watching us. I feel like I, you know, I spent my dissertation kind of writing about the poetics of haunting. And um, I feel like that, that kind of like feeling that the ghosts have my back kind of always mm -hmm. resonates with me. Um, so uh, yeah, that's been a really wonderful book to teach in my Asian American lit classes, but um, I have way too many books to to recommend so I can't and like my to read list is like massive I have oh, yeah it's impossible and stacks of books that I can't wait to read because for the first time I'm going to be on sabbatical <gasps> um, this upcoming year and I haven't Yay. had a I haven't had a break from teaching since 2008 oh my gosh yes I've taught every single you every are single your mother's week. child I know it's working 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 <laughs> like oh my gosh it's kind of like oh no um, <laughs> and uh I cannot wait to just read and eat snacks and maybe you know you just like make a bunch of bowls because I do ceramics and so oh. that's my plan um is really to read eat snacks and um make pottery um very soon I suppose so <laughs> it's coming up it's coming um, I'm so excited for you and so excited for like the composting that will be happening in your mind and soul as you're resting like that. And then what's going to come from it after that's oh, going to be so awesome. Um, the, the way that I want to end this is to read you to you. Oh, because <laughs> this is one of, this is one of the things I dog-eared um, that, you know, there's, there's this beautiful uh, rumination on your part of why, do I write poetry? Where mm. did that come from? Why, you know, and you, you touched on it a little bit in our conversation with, well, of course I do. You know, I grew up in a restaurant and, and, you know, my ancestors and, and, but this moment right here, I feel was one of the moments that I just thought, hell yeah. <laughs> okay. So anyone who's curious in my copy, it's on page 229. It says, that's exactly why I love poetry, why we need poetry. It asks us to come to it on our own terms, to let go of our structures, clock and calendar, email and spreadsheets, clarity and aboutness. We need bewilderment. We need transformation. Then into idea, then into more ta tangible action. That's a quote there. Maybe it's one line. Maybe it's just the sound of a word. Maybe it's the shape or the flush of feeling that overwhelms you after listening to a poet read. So you must beg again, again. It's incredible how one poem can expand your entangled mind and heart borderless. A poem can stay with you your entire life. Damn, Jane. Everybody go get Jane's book. Meet oh. me tonight in Atlantic City, which comes out May 16th, but is available for pre-order now. I loved this book. It is so filling and nurturing and, um, you know, enraging and sad and hilarious. Um and I really just want you to tell your mom I said hi and thank you. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Lindsay. This has been such a pleasure and an honor. 
And everyone, like I said, go get this book. You will love it. Thank you so much, Lindsay. It was such a joy to be in conversation with you today. So much fun. Likewise. Likewise.